Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The U.S. Agency for International Development is known for operating around the globe. Now it has a geospatial strategy. It hopes will improve decision-making and ultimately effectiveness of its aid programs. Details now from USAID's chief geographer, Carrie Stokes. Ms. Stokes, good to have you with us. Good to be here. And tell us about the purpose of the geospatial strategy. What is it going to let the agency do that it doesn't do now? So USAID, as you mentioned, is the U.S. government lead for international development and humanitarian assistance. And we work in nearly 100 countries around the world to reduce poverty, strengthen the democratic governance process, save lives, and really help people beyond the technical assistance and the development assistance. We want them to be able to be resilient on their own. And we're faced currently with many complex challenges around the world at the moment, and we need every tool in the toolbox. So this geospatial strategy was needed to strengthen the capacity of our entire agency around the world to access and benefit from the advancements in geospatial data, tools, and technologies. And what are the elements in a geospatial strategy? What's in there? Sure. So the strategy emphasizes what we call a geographic approach to development. This geographic approach really allows us to better understand where we're already working and then compare that to where are the needs the greatest and then help us track the progress of our programs as we're implementing them by location in all the many countries that we work in around the world. So this particular strategy actually has four objectives. The first one is to ensure that our own staff who work all over the world in many different sectors actually get access to um, geospatial data and tools. These tools are advancing so fast right now in the geospatial industry, but it doesn't mean that we've been able to keep up inside our agency with ensuring that everybody has access to this kind, these kinds of advancements. But just having access isn't enough. We also need to ensure that our own colleagues around the world in USAID know how to use them because they are experts in what they do in health, in education, in environment, in climate change, democracy and governance, all these various sectors. But with technological advancements in this digital world in which we all live now, it's sometimes hard to keep up and understand how that can inform the kinds of decisions that we are making every day. So we're also trying to ensure that we can incorporate geographic information throughout many of our policies and our existing strategies that the agency already has in place. And then very importantly, not just looking inward and how we can advance our own operations through using geospatial information, but how we can be leaders globally in the application of geospatial data and technologies for international development and delivering humanitarian assistance. It sounds like then that you are accelerating the ability to visualize and understand what's already going on there, because I guess someone could find out everything by looking through spreadsheets and databases and reports and put it together, but the geospatial incorporates data that's already there in a way that you can visualize on a map and therefore say, hey, wait a minute, we have this going here, but it could probably benefit from that going on there also. Crude way to put it, but is that about what you're headed towards? It is. Um, Where we work shapes how we work. And we believe this strategy will help us better target our programs in the places where we know the need, where we're seeing where the need is the greatest. So for example, several of our overseas field offices, which we call missions, 
have brought in dedicated geographic information systems specialists, so GIS. And these people that we help missions hire are from the countries and they have local knowledge. They understand their culture and they bring with them this expertise to develop custom maps and help visualize and connect the dots about where we may be working, what sectors we may be working in. So just an example, in India, we can now track where women have access to mobile banking tools. That might not seem exciting to us in this country, but USAID works in many places where people don't have access to traditional financial you know, banking that we just take for granted in this country. In the country of Georgia, for example, the GIS specialist there has integrated geospatial visualization to display all of the investments that the uh, USAID mission is making by region and by municipality. And this helps us track our progress with our programs. And then flying over from Eastern Europe right now to uh, the Latin American region, an example there is our GIS specialist is helping us better understand the drivers of irregular migration from Central America. And in the mission in Honduras, we have adopted what we call a geo-targeting approach to concentrate our local programs in the 40 municipalities where more than 60% of irregular migrants originate. And we would not be able to do any of this without geospatial data and technology to be able to visualize these complex uh, relationships between what influences particular places where we work. We're speaking with Carrie Stokes. She's chief geographer and director of the Geo Center at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And so you are building your own information, geo databases, stuff that you cannot see in the standard commercial map apps that everybody uses that just simply don't show the information you need for the USAID mission. Fair to say? Very fair to say. Yes. So there is a lot of data out there these days. Uh, we're living in a digital world. There's almost a fire hose of digital data coming at us. But within USAID, we need to make sense of what's actually relevant for the kind of work that we are doing and what will help us make better informed decisions about targeting our actual you know, programs, future programs, and being able to track the ones we already have underway. So what's really important for us is to ensure that we are combining human expertise with information about what's on the ground in a customized way that may not have ever been uh, combined in the past to be able to illuminate relationships, um, trends on the ground, and truly inform what we're doing in, in a really fast-paced world these days. And do the commercial GIS tools enable you to build that capability on top of what they offer out of the package? They do. We use what's called proprietary software as well as open source software. As I mentioned earlier, we need every tool in the toolbox these days. So this geospatial industry is continuing to advance and many players today are designing apps and programs that were not around just uh, even 10 years ago, even five years ago. So it's important for us as uh, the leading international development agency to be able to stay on top of these technologies because uh, the insights that we can generate now are just unparalleled, even com compared to when the agency started more than 60 years ago. Sure. And there is a lot of geospatial activity going on in geospatial agencies like NGA and so forth, and particularly the acquisition of commercial satellite imagery. Are you looking at that and saying 
perhaps this satellite could aim right there and give us that picture, and then you can buy it and add it to your system. Yes, we are. So in-house within USAID, we currently have about 70 people with GIS expertise, half of whom are in our Washington-based offices, the other half of whom are in our overseas field offices. With the expertise that we bring and the technology that exists today, it's also critical to get relevant and timely data sets to include remotely sensed imagery. And we do have relationships with other U.S. government agencies to include NGA, NASA, NOAA, and others in the uh, interagency community, whereby we as a civilian agency can get access to high-resolution satellite imagery it's not classified data, but it's high enough uh, resolution that's very useful for the kind of work that we do. And examples of how we've been using imagery include tracking forest loss and illegal mining, for example, in uh, the Amazon. We have used it to better understand where refugees are moving. Um, there are quite a few settlements in the country of Colombia for people who have left Venezuela during very difficult times in that country. We have been able to track water resources and anticipate places that may be uh, drying up due to shifts in weather patterns. So having the satellite imagery is just one more really critical layer component of the tools in our toolbox. It's not enough as it is just to be able to see an image of the ground. It's really important to be able to see changes over time and be able to track that and combine it with other layers of data that give us these insights about what's happening on the ground. Safe to say you won't be asking Congress for a U.S. aid fleet of satellites, though. The capability is there to acquire. You are right. Um, we're not a mapping agency, but we do use mapping technology and we remain very active in the interagency community because our government already is investing quite a bit into space-based technologies to help us better understand you know, life here on Earth and how we can ensure that we're using the resources most effectively and sustainably for humans to continue to live on Earth. So we leverage the relationships and the investments across agencies because it doesn't really make sense for the government to be buying the same data twice. This is why it's so important for us in the geospatial community within the interagency community uh, to collaborate. I'm sure some people that oversee these things wish it was only twice that the government pays the same data. Yeah. But let me ask you about one thing you mentioned, the second part of the strategy, and that is training and making sure that the people who are not geographers but are actually aid practitioners can understand and use these tools. What's the plan for the training and education there? Yes, you you hit on a critical piece here. We can have all the greatest technology, but if, if we haven't empowered our own staff to really use it, we're not really going to be you know making the progress that we want to internally that the strategy was established to do. So we have internal training programs. We have something we call geofocusing workshops, and they're really kind of fun. We gather our colleagues together in a field mission, and we look at all of the sectors in which that particular field mission is already working. So it may already have programs in health. It may already have programs in food security. It may have programs in education, girls' education in particular. It may already have programs to identify how to empower youth. And so what this geographic approach does is allow us to look at a particular place and understand all the factors that influence that place, not necessarily looking first to the sectoral issue, but what's going on in this particular community. And it allows us to better understand the scale. So when we work from, we have a team of GIS specialists who are based in Washington and what we call the Geocenter, which I lead. 
And when we work to um, help our colleagues kind of sit down at half day and take a look at all of the different data sets and trends that are happening in their particular sector, which they know well, but we show them maps with the data across all the sectors. And we ask them questions and they start to realize and see, not just know intuitively, but can see, where do we have linkages between, for example, our food security work and our education level, um, uh, efforts to improve education levels. And for example, in the country of Uganda, we discovered through the data and analytics that there is a very strong correlation between levels of girls' literacy at the household level, as well as the level of food security or food insecurity. And what this means is the higher the education level for girls, the higher and more food secure that household is. And these are interesting findings to come about because our programs are funded separately by sector. So our food security efforts are more focused on traditional uh, activities that you would imagine, improving drought resistant crops, ensuring that our um, cross-border trade is, in, um, is smooth so that where there may be shortfalls in crop yields, we can supplement that with the market if the market is strong, places where there are surpluses. But girls' education, that's not historically been something that we would think would improve food security at community or even at household levels. So when we can see these linkages, it's really important because then we can now plan more holistically. Does it make sense to be able to you know, leverage purposely some of the resources that we might have been putting in traditional efforts around food security to also invest in girls' literacy levels? And just to wrap it up, it sounds like you had these geospatial efforts in place already. The strategy kind of organizes them and brings them under some kind of rubric that everybody can understand. That is right. We have already learned from several years of using geospatial data and technology and mapping. We have this geocenter that's been in place for about 12 years, but USAID has historically had minimal geospatial capacity, but it's been disparate and hasn't been coordinated. What this strategy does is it ensures that we are coordinating, it ensures that we are leveraging as best we can, where it makes the most sense, our resources. And it also just institutionalizes and recognizes that even though we may not be a mapping agency, we do work in geographic places that need a lens of a geographic approach, uh, geographic analyses to ensure that we are making the very best and most informed decisions. So this strategy will strengthen those efforts. And we also believe over the five-year period of the strategy that we will also be able to garner further resources to get us to the level of internal capacity that we need to take full advantage of what exists today in our geospatial technology world. Carrie Stokes is Chief Geographer and Director of the Geo Center at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.